Okay. Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, and to those listening, thanks for joining us. So this gathering is being recorded on December 21st, 2023. And it's our first or rather our third live monthly call for the Bitcoin Consulting Network. Uh, wishing everyone a wonderful winter solstice. So shortest day of the year, seasonal shift, some would say a marker of death and rebirth. So, you know, times of new beginnings are always great opportunities to manifest transformation. Um, so take from that what you will. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name's Caribou. I'm a Bitcoin consultant at Finney 21, which is a firm dedicated to accelerating the transition to scarce money. Uh, current block height is 822.261. Some people are currently silly enough to sell their Bitcoin for 43,568 US dollars per Bitcoin right now. Um, so I wanna thank everyone who's here um, and who listens to this and specifically everyone here who's sharing insights and perspectives. Uh, I think being here is proof of work and this is sort of how we learn and evolve as a network of peers together to advance sound money. A few people reached out to speak about the topics today so uh, they'll get priority. But if at any point you want to speak, please just raise your hand. Um, it'll help us from talking over each other. And if you do have something to say, please do, because I think diversity of perspective is important. Uh, and if you're speaking, please make sure you're in a quiet space so we can hear you clearly. So this month's topic is self-custody. So we're going to dive deep into that and specifically talk about the why, the how, and the what. So agenda, uh, we're going to start with why is self-custody important? Uh, we'll talk about self-custody trade-offs. The role of a consultant in helping people self-custody. Talk about tools that we use and recommend, so including software and hardware. Uh, and then we have Luke Broyles, who is going to share a bit about his work at the Bitcoin Advisor and opportunities uh, that are opening up to work with him. And then at the end, we'll just touch on the oath of honor. Uh, and specifically, I just want to mention sort of the ethos of the Hippocratic Oath uh, and what it was created for and what it stood for, maybe to give us a little bit of inspiration for creating our own oath for the Bitcoin Consultants Network uh, as sort of like, uh, you know, a moral guideline we can all strive to live up to. So let's get into it. Why is self-custody important? That is the first topic. And, you know, not your keys, not your coins uh, is a great reminder to be mindful of the dangers of custodian, custodians and uh, counterparty risk. It's, I don't think it's necessarily an absolute where it's never okay to use a custodian, but I think the essence of that is to be mindful because Bitcoin is designed to be money that is held by the people uh, within a peer-to-peer -peer network. So let's talk about why is self-custody important and what does self-custody actually mean? Uh, and AC, I believe you reached out to me and wanted to speak about this. So the floor is yours. And then when AC is done speaking, um, then anyone who has anything to chime in on that topic uh, can feel free to do so. Scarabou. Yeah, so so custody for me is one of those things that's inherent, organic. And are you of, able to put your volume up just a tiny bit? It's pretty faint in my ears. I don't know if that's happening for other people too. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. That's all good. Uh, so so self-custody for me is one of those things that's inherent, basically kind of foundational to Bitcoin. It's one of those things that uh, we have to as Bitcoiners uh, take ownership and control of. Uh, with all this talk about the ETF, really, my biggest concern with the ETF 
is sorry uh, ac i hate to interrupt you but it's still pretty faint i just want to make sure people can hear what you're saying because i know it's going to be juicy stuff so yeah yeah well hey why don't you move on and let me uh reset up to a different microphone okay sounds good so while ac is getting his mic sorted uh anyone who wants to chime in specifically why is self-custody uh important like why should people care because i think the reality is that you know, I personally think a very small subset of people actually in the long historical chain of Bitcoin's existence are actually going to hold UTXOs on the base chain. I don't think this is going to be something that individuals, apart from maybe super high net worth people in future, will end up doing. So we're in kind of like this very unique time where we can still use the base chain for a fairly reasonable rate to transfer UTXOs. I think most of humanity will exist on layer two and above. Um, but at this time right now to maintain decentralization of this global monetary network, I think it is important for people uh, for their own security and to preserve their wealth to take ownership and responsibility for managing their private keys. Um, but it can be difficult, you know, I mean, on one respect, it's like it's as easy as writing down 12 words. Uh, and on the other respect, the more of your wealth that you have in Bitcoin, the more you have to sort of be mindful and take precautions as to how you're securing that. And so if self-custody is sometimes an intimidating endeavor, what I've learned is that unless people deeply understand why it's important, it can be really hard for them to sustain the motivation to actually put the energy into learning how. So Luke, I would love to hear your take on, yeah, why is self-custody important? And even to people who might be listening that don't really know what that is, what is self-custody? What does that actually mean? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, think, I think most people don't really understand uh, self-custody. Even most Bitcoiners, I don't think, understand the importance of that. Um, for, I, I think for that, we have to back up. What is the problem Bitcoin solves? The, 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 the problem Bitcoin solves is that it removes single point of failure at the currency level. So right now, all forms of political currency are essentially controlled by political institution, right? That's why they're fiat or by decree or political currency. Um, additionally to that, you know, you have gold and other commodities. You know, again, the problem is that you have a central point of failure in storing those analog uh, forms of energy, analog forms of money. So the problem the essential problem Bitcoin solves, yes, it's decentralization, yes, it's immutability, yes, it's all these things, but but the real problem it solves is that for the first time we no longer have a single point of failure for the for a monetary network, right? Now, now that problem is solved, the new greatest problem is, well, how do you store that, right? Like the money itself is fixed, so now the question is, how do we store that, right? And that's the question self-custody is, right? It's the self-custody is the new single largest economic challenge in the world, right? For the last few thousand years, it has been the money itself. Now it's how to store the money, right? And so self-custody is the new problem needing to be solved. And it's the new thing people need to learn about and how to take care of, right? Now the solutions um, are available today, but you know most people don't even realize uh, that it's going to be a big question in their life in the future, right? And so if we keep it super simple, I liked your point about the UTXOs, um, you know, hopefully people understand that, but I think keeping it perhaps even simpler for the newbies uh, to self-custody is there are 1.7 million Bitcoin left on exchanges. 
and there are 60 million millionaires, okay? One Bitcoin is roughly $40,000, $45,000 US, okay? So if one in 30 of those 60 million millionaires decides they want a 5% allocation of Bitcoin, aka buying $50,000 worth of Bitcoin, aka one Bitcoin, then that's all of them, right? So pe people really do not realize how scarce the Bitcoins on exchanges are, and they do not realize that, yes, 3% of, you know, 60 million, we're, we're talking like 2 million people, yes, it's going to take years for them to figure that out, but it's not going to take nearly as long as people think for exchanges to be drained, right? It only takes very small percentages of the world's population to take small allocations to Bitcoin to drain exchanges, right? Obviously, as they continue to be drained, Bitcoin price goes up, right? That's part of the whole thesis. That's meaning it's hard to drain, right? Obviously, it's a feedback loop. It's not quite that simple. But the larger point is that, to Caribou's point and, and to the points I'm sure many other very intelligent people on this call are going to make today, um, you know, the point is Bitcoins are scarce. If you're bullish on Bitcoin, you understand its scarcity. And if you understand its scarcity, you understand that exchanges are being drained and that any form of paper Bitcoin is inferior to real Bitcoin, right? So it makes no logical sense to buy Bitcoin and keep it on an exchange for an overly extended period of time, right? If you need some time to learn about self-custody, good, then do it. But to think an exchange or any form of paper Bitcoin is a viable, safe, and effective long-term means of storage for Bitcoin is to be completely negligent of the new greatest challenge in the world, as I said earlier, self-custody, um, and also completely disregarding the problem in the first place that Bitcoin solves, which is single point of failure. So um, long story short, the encouragement of today's show that myself and Caribou and everyone else here is going to make is please take self-custody. If you're listening to this and you've got money uh, in some in some Bitcoin thing, uh, just withdraw it, get real Bitcoin, because it makes absolutely no logical sense, right? Either Either sell it. And go back to cash, go back to your banking system because, you know, that's safer than your exchange um, if you're going to go back to the fiat mindset or actually follow through and you know, withdraw your Bitcoin to, to self-custody. So long answer short, that, that's that's the importance of it. It's the new greatest uh, challenge in the world and uh, it's going to manifest really quickly, you know, as these few percent of millionaires take a few percent allocation. People are going to quickly realize that, okay, now that we have Bitcoin, what do we do with yeah. And I think when everyone, you know, this whole meme of gradually, then suddenly, uh, I think people are going to realize the truth of that the hard way. And the truth is, I remember Luke, you had mentioned this on our white paper event. It's like when everyone suddenly realizes that self-custody is an imperative, not just like something that could be done, but actually something that is existentially important to preserve and take actual ownership of your Bitcoin. When everyone tries to do that at once, it becomes much harder to do right? Heart signing devices become much harder to come by. Guidance becomes much harder to access because, you know, everyone on this call will likely be very busy helping people navigate uh, the path to self-custody. So I think the earlier you do it, the better. And like you said, I mean, if you have this very special tool called Bitcoin, which is a property that you can actually take custody of, uh, which is the novel innovation and you choose to never take custody. It's kind of like buying this like nice car that works really well and is reliable and never driving it and never actually even bringing it onto your own property, just leaving it at the dealership and saying, yeah, I got a nice car, but not doing anything with it. And, and the reality is if you wanted that car, they might not even give it to you. 
So yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a continuum of understanding and it takes people a while to get there. Some people, um, in my experience, once the light bulb hits, people actually get this like deep sense of urgency. At least I got that. And so I guess the question is as consultants, how can we make the why so obvious, so clear and so inviting, right? Just less intimidating that people really lean into the idea of understanding self-custody, the importance of self-custody, and then being able to take their first step towards that um, and doing it in such a way that they understand the actual urgency and the, the, the narrow window we might be perhaps approaching where it becomes much harder to do so. Um, thanks for that, Luke. And let's go AC. We'll see if you got your mic sorted. And then there's a couple of hands that went up. So we'll go to, to y'all next. Yeah. How do, how do I sound now? You're good now. I got you. Okay, perfect. Sorry about that earlier. Really what I wanted to talk about with self-custody um, and both you and Luke already hit on it. So I'm not going to beat that dead horse, but really it's, it's the unconfiscatability of it. What we've seen over the past couple years, and you can name the exchange, uh, whether it's FTX, Three Arrows, Terra, uh, Celsius, uh, we probably all know somebody who's been impacted or even some of us may have been impacted chasing yield at one point or another. <clears throat> and this gets to the paper Bitcoin piece of it. And kind of what I put in the chat is I think that self-custody is a journey and it starts off with something like a hot wallet on your mobile phone. And then it progresses to something like uh, that's stored in a hardware wallet, cold storage offline. And, and the other point that I made in the chat is that it's not an all or one. It's not binary. I think everybody's going to get to a point where you're going to have multiple modes and multiple types of self-custody based on your utilization. You know, if you're a high transaction type of person, you're probably going to have um, a self-custody hot wallet on your mobile phone to continue to transact but your long-term store of value savings are going to be on potentially a multi-sig cold storage solution uh, that rarely or hardly ever transacts and you've got a watch only wallet where you can continue to bca into that but really it's a journey and it's important for consultants to go through that journey as well so that they can advocate on different solutions and different potential solutions for clients. And that's really all I wanted to say. Thanks, Caribou. Awesome. Thanks for that, AC. Um, let's go with, I don't know who was first, but let's go with Brooke. Yeah, hi, everybody. I, uh, thanks for letting me uh, chime in. I have a little bit of a different perspective. When we talk to the absolute newbies who really have no idea about Bitcoin at all, I actually like to start out with, uh, the thought of what it, what is custody in the fiat system. And I think with the degree of education that most people have, they don't understand, like, when I, if I ask them, do you think the cash at the bank belongs to you? Uh, do, they, do you think they keep it in a box, uh, you know, at the back and they're ready to give you your money back? And so the way that the traditional system works is really any, any bank account statement that you're seeing is essentially an IOU. That, that particular bank, that entity, is telling you that you, you're holding an IOU for a certain amount of dollars in, in, on their balance sheet. And it's not like your money is actually there. And so we find you know, when these banks collapse because of poor management or decisions that uh, those IOUs aren't always honored. 
And so I kind of like to take that approach first and get people to understand what the system that they're working with now is actually like. And once that's cleared up, I think they understand a lot better that, uh, you know, if, if you have your own custody akin to burying your gold in your backyard, as opposed to leaving it at the bank where it could get confiscated by the government. If you bury it in your backyard, it's, it's pretty much indisputably yours. You have responsibility for it, but, um, you know, it's highly unlikely that somebody's going to scoot off with it. So um, those, th that's the way I like to approach things with the absolute newbies who have no idea about Bitcoin at all. I think that's a really important perspective to come from because you end up sort of meeting people at the level they're at within the current system and sort of almost emphasizing the problem that Bitcoin solves because if they don't actually know the problem, it's really hard to do the hard thing uh, and learn a new thing if you don't actually understand the problem it solves and that that problem directly affects you. And you you highlighted the element there that like cust self-custody fundamentally is about accepting responsibility for your property. And I think all of the, you know, I spend my time in the, the world of money and the world of health and all of the systems in the legacy world of health and money are seem to be oriented around offering people the opportunity to forfeit responsibility, thinking that other people can take responsibility for their health or money for them and that they're trustworthy and that they're giving them the right advice or doing the right things. And I think change is hard, especially when it's like a big change, like accepting a radical amount of responsibility. And, you know, people learn through curiosity or pain in my experience. And sometimes people have to experience pain firsthand in order to really understand that a problem is affecting them. But yeah, I think just the illiteracy of the world of legacy finance even is, I think, the biggest reflection of why people don't have any understanding of all the risks that are inherent in the old legacy system. They just assume money in the bank is mine. I can take it when I want. Uh, the bank that I have my money in is actually solvent. And if they really understood the underbelly of all this and how false those statements are, I think a lot more people would be rushing to take custody of their Bitcoin because the difficulty of taking self-custody would be shifted into a different perspective when they realize all the wealth that they don't have in Bitcoin is actually at a high level of risk instead of perceiving that Bitcoin is risky and their bank money is safe. Um, Thanks for that, Brooke. Uh, Coach? Thank you. Uh, basically, uh, agreeing with all of what's been said, and I like to use the this metaphor of inside money and outside money, right? Most money is what we call inside money, which means it's somebody else's liability. It's basically an IOU that, you know, somebody owes you uh, this money. And Bitcoin and gold are pretty much the only outside monies and only if you self-custody them, right? Uh, Bitcoin on an ETF or an exchange is not outside money. It's just another IOU, which is, it's kind of the difference between knowing how to drive and being able to use an Uber. I mean, sure, there those are two ways of getting around, but if you don't know how to drive because you think Uber was always gonna be there, you're you're lacking an important skill set that, you know, it won't be, it won't be noticeable until you need it. And then it'll be like, oh my God, you know, you'll be in horrible trouble because you never took the time to learn how to do this properly. So for me, uh, self-custodying Bitcoin is about uh, eliminating counterparty risk. And I think uh, the single point of failure moves from 
an external institution to oneself, which is scary for uh, for people at the beginning. And I think we need to acknowledge that. And in that sense, I very much echo this idea that self-custody is a journey and people need to get comfortable with, uh, you know, keys and seeds and backups and transactions and deleting the wallet and restoring it. And I think it we need to be mindful and aware that, um, you know, it's it, it takes some time and some actual experience, kind of like riding a bike. They need to get on the bike and actually fall down a few times and see what that feels like. Um, and and I think part of our job is just helping them along in, in this journey of becoming, you know, ever more competent at self-custody. Agreed. Reducing the fear around taking responsibility. And I think yeah. that can be done through facilitating understanding. Um, and last call, you said something that I that I thought was uh, very uh, very well thought out, which is like, okay, you have a custody strategy X. At what price do we need to sit down and and sort of rediscuss or rethink whether this custody strategy is still adequate, given you know the percentage of your net worth that this might now represent, et cetera? Yeah, I think that's. You know, maybe we can chat more about that when we get into like, what is the role of a consultant when it comes to facilitating a client's ability to take custody of their keys? Because I think for me, a big part of that role is being uh, the prompt to remind people, like decide on a value threshold whereby they should revisit their strategy and then remind them when that time comes. Because it may not, you know, it's easy. Sometimes I find it easy for me to think that because I am thinking about Bitcoin at all times. Uh, because of just how interesting and profound it is to assume that other people are as well. But the reality is that people literally just want to set it and forget it like a DCA. Um, but that becomes very risky when you realize how quickly things can drastically change in the world of Bitcoin. And so, you know, part of the service of being a consultant for a client might be being their prompt to remind them when, you know, every, maybe every six months, it's a call with a client to revisit their custody strategy. How do you feel about it? Do you know where your keys are? Run a health check to make sure all those keys are in the right spot with the right people, you know, all those things. I think there's a lot of service elements in being uh, an effective, helpful consultant that we can talk about. Um, thanks for that coach. And I think fundamentally, you know, the idea of custody, Custodying one's keys in Bitcoin and taking care of yourself in the world of health are both, I think, heroic moves in a in a sick world and in a world where we're kind of enslaved by the dark forces of fiat. And so the way I look at it is like when I'm trying to help someone custody their Bitcoin, I'm trying to help them muster the courage and the desire to become the hero of their of their own lives. And I do think taking custody of your Bitcoin is a heroic move. And if we frame it like that, I think it changes the meaning imbued in the, the notion of doing that because it's it can be very scary to take radical responsibility for your wealth, right? Knowing that if you mess something up, you might lose a huge portion of your wealth. I think that's that scares a lot of people off. Um, but I think the only reason that that's really scary is because they actually don't even know the definition of something like counterparty risk and how the fiat fractional reserve system actually works. Because if they did, they'd be scared shitless keeping their wealth in there. So it's all just education. I think with health and money, it's just education so that people really have a 
good understanding of the situation so they can make wise choices. Um, so next we can talk about how we think about self-custody trade-offs. Does anyone else have anything else to say about the why? Um, why it's important to take self-custody? Okay, I think that point's good. So let's talk about self-custody trade-offs. And my take has always been in working with clients, um, and this kind of ties into liability, I think a little bit as well with consulting is, I don't ever want to tell anyone what to do. I don't want, uh, I don't want to be the person they come to for answers. I want to ensure that people have a good grasp and understanding of all the variables involved so that they have a foundation to make wise choices. And so to me in Bitcoin, what that really means is presenting all of the trade-offs uh, to them that they need to consider when choosing to custody their keys. So step one is make sure they understand the why and they have a desire to self-custody. Once they do, when we're trying to determine the optimal strategy for an individual, it's okay, I'm gonna bring them all of the trade-offs to consider. And to me, you know, a trade-off is like a compromise that involves giving one thing up in return for giving something else, uh, for getting something else. So you can't have both, you must have one or the other. And obviously this is a continuum where it kind of like, you know, constantly goes from less of one, more of the other. And there's like a, it's almost like a, a dial. Um, but let's hear from uh, Alexi, because he had mentioned he wanted to talk about this. And then, um, yeah, we can just kind of riff on how do we think about self-custody trade-offs? What are the trade-offs that we bring to people's attention? Um, and yeah, let's go there. Alexi? Yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. So uh, first of all, thank you for this opportunity to share my thoughts on this subject. Um, Self-custody trade-offs. Um, yeah, so my name is Alexi. Um, and maybe just very briefly, my story, very condensed, just to give some context, um, I first discovered Bitcoin around uh, the year 2011 um, when my very good friend introduced me to it after Bitcoin hit $1 mark. Of course, at that time, I had no uh, capability to understand the potential that Bitcoin holds, although even then, it was very interesting to me that there is some kind of uh, value storing technology that uh, managed to match the de facto leading currency in the world, like the US dollar. But I thought that probably was the limit at that time. Uh, yeah, but and it, it happened only years after uh, when I truly started to understand Bitcoin and started to acquire my first sets. And interestingly enough, I started with self-custody from the get-go. So I got my first uh, Trezor device. I sort of uh, made myself familiar with the concept of uh, seed phrases and certain implications that come along with that. So, um, and so what are trade-offs? And I want to preface that uh, with saying that uh, I'm a huge advocate of self-custody when it comes to Bitcoin and also a practitioner myself. Um, but I think, however, it is a very important question and uh, it's uh, fascinating to observe the concept from different perspectives. And here's my take on that. So um, in the Bitcoin land, we often say 
that's not your keys, not your coins. But so what does it mean if it's your keys? So if, if it's your keys, then it means it's your responsibility. And I think uh, this is a very substantial psychological aspect uh, that is just not something uh, for the majority of the people to work with. It's just too much because people like in general, um, they don't do like uh, self-medicine or self-governance, self-policing, uh, self-defense of borders, etc. So people tend to outsource uh, high stakes situations to professionals. And in this case, uh, safeguarding one's uh, wealth or just sub substantial part of that or the whole wealth is of course a very high stake situation. And for a lot of people, this is a huge trade-off to carry this weight or this perceived weight on their shoulders. And I think um, this is also a trade-off um, for the whole Bitcoin network because self-custody um, is probably one of the biggest hurdles on the, on the path to mass adoption because mass adoption can, of course, happen when the majority of people uh, also buy into the uh, notion of uh, self-custody. Um, then what we also have, at least from my experience of, you know, just observing and reading Twitter, Bitcoin Twitter, social media, and also attending countless meetups, is the sometimes false sense uh, of security and self-pride, where self-custody is often being paraded like as a part of um, Bitcoin self-sovereign mythology where one doesn't need to trust but to verify, right? But what are our actual capabilities to verify things? Um, I mean, I think that's that's an important question to ask. And essentially where these capabilities end, the trust begins again. And for a lot of people, I think it begins with the Bitcoin network itself. I mean, am I capable to truly uh, uh, verify for myself that the Bitcoin network works today how it's supposed to work? Uh, can I read the code? Can I understand it? Or do I trust the consensus of the network? Um, then it goes, of course, to the, to the hardware. So I can have my... Uh, my hardware wallet, whatever Trezor, Ledger, but can I really verify that there are no bad doors? Uh, and if it's open source, am I skilled again to check the code and verify it? Do I do it every time before I do a transaction? Um, so again, I have to put some sort of trust into, into this company or this device. And also, of course, the uh, trust uh, in my own capacity to make sure that my software is working as intended, that my computer or my phone is not compromised, that my InfoSec skills are at a certain standard because maybe, you know, maybe my neighbor, uh, neighbor is spying on me because they concluded that I might be whatever high net worth individual holding substantial amounts of crypto. They might acquire certain technology. They might be an attack planned against me. Am I capable to really be aware enough of these things happening? Or do I trust that everything is fine? And of course, our physical security protocols like OPSEC, 
uh, being a target. And obviously, if you hold, if you're holding uh, a certain value, a certain wealth, then you are a target by definition. And are you capable of being a, hard, a, a target that is hard to hit? Uh, do you have a certain level of awareness of you know things that are going on around you? Uh, again, then we have, of course, the other practical things like protection of our private keys. So uh, if it's a seed phrase or like uh, uh, multiple seed phrases, um, we need to store them properly. We need to have all this different uh, information. Of what is the best practice? Um, if we put them in a safe spaces, do we trust in the safe, safe spaces? What is our capability to verify the level of protection these safe spaces have? Or if we distribute, for example, our keys with peop to people, again, trusted people, right? And again, we have this concept of trust um, that is just inherent at some point to this problematic. Um, then uh, if you're more advanced and you have a complex setup, then there is a risk of uh, the setup being so complex that uh, you lose access to your own funds forever. So, uh, and we know a lot of stories of, you know, people uh, just locking themselves out of their, um, of their setups, uh, losing their money. Um, as um, again was discussed before, there is a necessity to check and readjust the setup on a regular basis. So to have a certain protocol in place and then to realize when is the time to change the actual protocol and am I capable enough to do that? Um, being singular point of failure as a self-Castonian um, and the necess necessity to balance that uh, if you try not to be the single singular point of failure uh, because then you have to introduce, of course, the other Count, uh, counterpart parties into that system. So, and <clears throat> essentially in the end, I think that self-custody, uh, although again, I'm a huge advocate of that, is not the ultimate solution some people just, you know, point it out to be, but uh, essentially it's a delicate system that reshuffles potential risks of losing one's capital. And ideally this risk should be made aware of and approached logically and probabilistically rather than emotionally. Um, yeah, and I would like to finish maybe on a little philosophical note that uh, Bitcoin uh, teaches us to be multidisciplinary, to understand history, economy, cryptography, and geopolitics, and also big concepts like energy and time and many other things. And uh, I think above all, it teaches us to be independent and uh, self-reliant. And in that vein, I believe uh, one like overarching strategy should not only rely on storing value in the most secure way possible, but because like any system can ultimately fail. But it also teaches also to teach us teach uh, themselves different ways of accumulating value because money can be lost but the skills one acquires last for the lifetime. Thank you. Well said. Thanks for that, Alexi. Um, I just want to briefly share my take on trade-offs and how I sort of articulate them to clients. And then if anyone else has anything to chime in on, uh, they can feel free to, um, to share. 
I'll say something from Matthew Golding, who said that he's in a public space uh, and it's busier than it's anticipated, so he won't be able to talk. His thoughts are that self-custody is the optimal endpoint for individuals, but it's worth considering that self-custody, especially for older people, can be scary, cumbersome, slash a security risk. Consequently, this may lead people to preferring to purchase these future ETFs. There was an interesting discussion on the topic that was released nine days ago. I don't necessarily agree with the conclusions, but it's an interesting perspective. Uh, and he included a YouTube video. So I just wanted to mention that because that's in the chat. Um, so I think there's a lot of trade-offs to consider when choosing to custody one's own keys, but the ultimate trade-off or the master trade-off that I constantly go back to is convenience versus security. Uh, and as a trade-off, that means more security means less convenience, more convenience usually means it's gonna be less secure. Um, so, you know, taking in the limit, it's most convenient to trust someone else to hold your Bitcoin. Uh, it's also least secure due to counterparty risk. And again, I don't actually think people have a lexicon for understanding what counterparty risk means. And I think concisely the way I explain it is the risk that the custodian who you're trusting with your funds could potentially default on their obligation to safeguard your property. Now that might, that could mean they just blatantly steal it from you. It could also mean that they go bankrupt, could mean that they get hacked. So there's a lot of attack vectors that unless you understand the security pro protocol of your custodian, there is always an element of risk by giving your funds to someone else, although that is the most convenient. So, um, you know, on the flip side of that, it's most secure to have a collaborative multi-sig vault with geographically dispersed, you know, um, air-gapped signers and redundant key backups and maybe even time-locked funds it's also super inconvenient to set up and requires a lot of technical understanding and a lot of energy to maintain uh, in order to access those funds. So, you know, people are gonna choose an option that falls somewhere between those two points, right? That really complex multi-sig and custodial solution. And I think it's really all about helping people evaluate the trade-offs made as they turn the dial from most convenient to most secure. Um, and that depends on a lot of factors, right? It depends on how much of their wealth is in Bitcoin, is in Bitcoin. What is their level of technical understanding? Um, as an aside to their level of technical understanding, what's their, what's their commitment of energy and time into improving their technical understanding? Because I've worked with people that have a very low initial technical understanding, but a super high desire to be consistent in, in a learning process. And they actually gain technical understanding at this insane pace to where they're actually extremely technically proficient with things that they need to do in order to hold their property securely because they know what their sats are worth. And so sometimes it's not about where you are or what you know, it's about how quickly you're and how motivated you are to learn. So again, I think the master trade-off is um, convenience versus security. And I also think that as an asterisk there, that tools are currently being built and will continue to be built that actually disrupts that fundamental trade-off and essentially allows us both, right? Like you have something like Fetty, uh, Fetty Mint, which can actually be more secure and more convenient. Um, and so I think, I think we should never underestimate the innovation, speed, and capacity of the Bitcoin community of this open network. Um, and, but I think when I really explain the trade-offs to someone who's ready to self-custody, I always fall back to the master trade-off, which is convenient and security, convenience and security, and making sure that people kind of understand all the variables involved 
to be able to navigate that and make a wise choice about where they want to fall on that continuum right now. And then when they want to revisit that, you know, what changes in either their wealth stored in Bitcoin or their life would come up to actually prompt a revisiting of that strategy. And, um, and you know, how do we go about that in developing the next step, the next strategy? Coach? I completely agree with the sort of master trade-off, as, as you call it, being this gradient between convenience and security. And just something to point out is that some of the variables that change as you move along that spectrum are uh, the level of privacy you can have, the level of control you can have over your coins. Uh, inheritance, I think, is important because I've, I've spoken with a few you know, young bucks who have these sophisticated uh, schemes for custodying their things, but they maybe they don't have kids yet or they don't have a wife. And and so, you know, just thinking about what happens when you're gone and making sure that, uh, you know, like if you're if you're fine donating, you know, your Bitcoin to the cause, that's great, but not <laughs> like inadvertently, you know. Yeah. And uh, physical safety, which, you know, was the topic of, of a call. So, just some of the, I think it's it, it'd be good to have like a, a small list of, as you move from one end of the spectrum to the other between convenience and security, what are the some, some of the things that change specifically that need to be considered as you're navigating those, those decisions? That's a really good point. And, you know, those variables, those life circumstances that might prompt a revisiting of a custody strategy, I think having kids or having dependents um, is one of those fundamental changes where I think that's actually part of our role as Bitcoin consultants is actually bringing up potential life circumstance changes that would prompt um, a revisiting of the custody strategy. So I think that's an important part of our work too, is to help people know what they don't know or be aware of what they don't currently know um, and in order for them to consider all variables, they have to actually be aware of the variables. And so I think these like mastermind calls, I always learn something that I didn't formally know. And I think by just sharing our perspectives and, and cases we're working on with clients, uh, we're all just going to learn how to be better together and just build more credibility in this work. Because I really think that this, the work of a Bitcoin consultant is currently not priced in is the demand, even though I think there's increasing demand and people who work in this space probably feel it uh, at certain points where, you know, people start to get more excited or more uh, eager to either self-custody or to acquire Bitcoin. But uh, I think eventually there's going to be a lot more demand when people really gain an appreciation of how, how important it is to have someone just to explain trade-offs, nuances, considerations um, that can sometimes be hard to get clarity on in the ocean of information in the internet. Um, anyone else have anything to mention about how we think about trade-offs? Okay, so the next uh, sort of subtopic is how do we help others self-custody? So we talked about why self-custody is important. Uh, we talked about trade-offs to consider. The next question is, as a Bitcoin consultant, what is the actual work of helping someone um, navigate the path to self-custody? Like what, you know, anyone who's working in this space, if you have any insights about your process or, uh, you know, 
what to do, maybe what not to do might be another, um, might be another one. Feel free to share. And then uh, I have some stuff to share if, if no one has anything to say. I'd be happy to step in on that one. Go for it. So, you know, the way I think about how best to advise someone is, you know, you first start off with kind of outlining, you know, the, the, the different options, right? I think there's a few, there's no right custody solution for one person and each person given their lifestyle, their maybe technical aptitude, um, maybe just even their, where they live or how secure they feel their home is. There's different ways at which they might uh, be comfortable or not comfortable with different type of custody options. And so I think the first thing to do is you kind of go over those um, broad kind of self-custody types and discuss with them the trade-offs, discuss with them, you know, what it would mean, what you should think about, where the points of failure are, and you kind of find the right um, setup for them. And then I think the next thing to do is obviously start walking them through how to set up that. Um, you know, to me, the most important thing to think about always is where the seeds are. And so, you know, um, I even think that, you know, like a as a Bitcoin consultant focusing on self-custody, the most important thing to think about is how do I provide my client with what I currently understand to be the safest possible thing they can do? Because uh, like we've kind of touched on briefly, right, as price increases, as the wealth that's contained within that um, ownership increases, the risk of it being taken increases. And not everyone's going to be um, interested or willing to you know, constantly be reiterating the process. Of course, as a, as a consultant, you, you might want to check in with them, but I think it's best to think about, well, if just, you know, uh, theoretically speaking, if they were to never speak with me again, what's the best thing I can set them up with now. And so, um, you know, I guess a couple thoughts on that is that, you know, you, you really have to think about where the seeds are. Right. And so if they have a machine that, has the seed on the machine, then you have to make sure they realize the the danger of having the seed on the machine, like a treasure or a, le a ledger. Um, you know, but if the seed is only on a plate and they're using a stateless machine, you have to make them realize the importance of you know how safe you have to keep that metal plate. And of course, you could say, well, alternatively, you could put a password on a machine, and that would make it sort of you, you're diversifying your risk a little more. And so I really think. Um, highlighting those things and then depending on whatever they choose, really um, putting in the effort and the work to set them up with that setup in the safest way possible um, is, is really the right way to move. Awesome. Thanks for that, Sydney. Um, I think I always start with uh, getting clear on expectations. So again, assuming someone understands the why has made the decision to self custody. And we are now in the process of working together, uh, for me to be able to facilitate them being able to navigate the path to self custody and what that even means, right? What, what is even the path to self custody now that they're motivated to do that? Let's define the path and where our first checkpoint is. And I often use the metaphor in health and in self custody that, okay, there's this mountain and it's a never ending mountain. And the goal is just to begin trekking up the mountain and up there, there's going to be multiple checkpoints. 
each checkpoint is sort of like a destiny is in health. It's either an area you want to focus on or in self-custody. It's what's the next strategy you want to work towards. Um, and so in terms of expectations is really being clear that number one, you are in charge of your funds. I am not ever going to take custody of your funds. I'm not ever going to ask you for your private seed. I'm not ever going to ask you for your wallet addresses, any of that. You are accepting full responsibility. If you make them, if you fuck up and the funds are gone, you are responsible. So I make sure that they understand I'm here as an, as someone to help them uh, on a mountain. I'm here to make sure you don't fall in giant holes and, you know, do my best to help you not hurt yourself, but you have to actually take the trek and you are accepting the risks of going, making this trek, which is if you screw up and don't give your sats the respect they deserve, they might leave you. So, and then also with expectations, just making sure people really understand that self-custody is a process, not an event. And I think sometimes people just want to get it done so they don't have to worry about it. And, you know, if I detect that sort of mindset, it's really important to make sure like, if you are ready to commit to this, you must commit fully. If you're not ready to fully commit to this, you shouldn't do it because it might be too risky. And then we can discuss alternatives or different ways of, um, you know, owning Bitcoin in a way where you're not accepting responsibility. But I think it's like assuming they're ready to, um, it's then about asking a bunch of questions to detect their blind spots, right? They don't know what they don't know. And so trying to detect blind spots and then making sure that I give them the right resources to fill those blind spots before they actually start to embark on the process of executing a strategy. Um, and then also just asking their commitment level, right? How much, you know, typically at Finney 21, we only work with people who are willing to put one hour a week of study in um, to deepening their understanding of Bitcoin. And then it's up to us to sort of design a learning journey for them. And if they're not ready to do that, maybe they're not ready to actually take it seriously. And that's fine. Everyone's ready at different points. Um, so what is their commitment level in terms of time invested personally learning about Bitcoin, learning about self-custody, and also what is the requirement for help, right? How much of my time do they, are they going to require? How much uh, of my energy are they willing to pay for? Because at the end of the day, uh, we need to make money for the time that we're offering people. Um, so starting there, just getting an idea, you know, setting expectations, detecting blind spots and giving them resources and then under, really understanding and getting clarity on their commitment level to go down this path. And I think some of the heuristics I always try and remember are don't give answers, ask good questions, don't tell people what to choose, empower them with the understanding to make wise choices, uh, help them consider all variables, even ones that they might not be aware of so that they can make the best decision based on their current circumstances. Um, and then also offer being a reminder and a prompt to re for them to revisit their strategy at either certain price thresholds or certain life circumstances that might change uh, and help them even like literally something as simple as saying, if we want to revisit this in six months, go right now to your calendar and put a reminder alert on your calendar. Because at the end of the day, a lot of people don't do what they intend to do, not because they're not motivated to, or not because they don't have the ability, but because there's literally just no reminder for them to do it. So I think even just from a behavior design perspective, nudging them along the path to actually like making a plan, even something as simple as a calendar reminder, um, or if they prefer it to be a price threshold, it's like, okay, tell me the price threshold where you want to revisit this. And I'll make a note that when the value of Bitcoin goes above that, I'll get in touch with you and we'll revisit it. So I think in terms of the how, those are the things that I sort of keep in mind. Um, and then the three best practices that I try and give them as things to remember, uh, if they are using their own device, 
and really taking ownership to custodying their own keys is always begin by eliminating malware, use free and open source software, and use air-gapped signing devices. And I ex kind of explained those. Maybe we can riff on that a little bit more in the next section about tools. Um, yeah, that's my, uh, those are my nuggets. Anyone else have anything to say about how do we help others self-custody? So they're, they understand the why, they're ready to take self-custody. What is the role of a consultant? What is the work of a consultant in helping people do that? Luke? Yeah, I, I think the points that have been made have been really good ones. Um, funny enough, you know, I, I, where I work at the Bitcoin Advisor, you know, this is like what I do, right? Like I, I do a bunch of calls, like say I've got another four calls or so for work, you know, and a lot of these calls are literally helping people for the first time withdraw from exchanges, right? For some people, that's less. For some people, that's more. For some people, it's just their first test. For other people, it's their life savings, right? So, and I, I love it because it's literally helping people take coins off exchanges. Uh, but people that haven't yet done that, typically they hear multi-sig and they think, oh, that's intimidating. Oh, that's difficult. And, you know, oh, I got to figure out single sig first. And I understand why people think that, but I do genuinely believe that the future of Bitcoin custody, you know, is multi-sig, right? I mean, I say often on Twitter that we have less in common with the future than the past. That's that, that's a phrase I say in regards to technology as a whole, but I think it's also true in terms of Bitcoin, right? I think the single SIG era um, has a long way to go, you know, at least another 10x to go, right? But I, I do think that eventually multi-sig will be a much larger market than single SIG, right? And so for these people that I'm helping at work, you know, they reach out to me, they schedule a call, we go a call, we go over what we're going to do. Um, and then once, once they say, okay, we're good to go, then, then onboarding them and helping them is super easy because, you know, as a multi-sig key agent, you know, basically they are handheld through the entire process. And I would argue lower risk because there is zero single point of failure, right? If they, um, you know, mess up the, the single SIG wallet they have, right? If they lose their keys, if, um, you know, if someone in their family intentionally or accidentally exposes those keys, right? Um, you know, if someone breaks in the house and takes it, right? You know, like these are all real problems people have. And so walking through setting up a multi-SIG vault, the, the client seeing, oh, wow, my, my coins are finally in self-custody. They have this huge sigh of relief. Uh, typically their spouse is with them or others. And they have a huge sigh of relief because, you know, generically speaking, we're typically talking about middle-aged guys that have put a lot of money in Bitcoin, typically more than what, what the wife or the girlfriend or fiance wants, right? And so them seeing that, oh, wait, the Bitcoin is safe. Oh, wait, the Bitcoin is secure. And oh, th this intimidation I have with self-custody as a whole and multi-sig specifically has now been overcome. I know now that there's an estate plan. I know now that there is a plan that if I get hit by a bus, if something happens to me, my kids are going to get my coins, right? And this brings a lot of peace of mind to the person themselves, but then also to the relationship they're in with their partners or their parents or their children or whomever else the other people in the, in the dynamic is. And ultimately, ironically, it helps them buy more Bitcoin, right? So funny enough is that, you know, if you're watching this and you're like, oh, I don't want to do self-custody because I, I want to focus on getting to one coin, or I don't want to focus on self-custody because I don't feel like I have a Bitcoin. It's like <laughs> the, the, the ironic reality is that if you get your self-custody down 
And if you get it to where there is no, where there is zero single point of failure, you know, in my opinion, I think that's, you know, multi-sig collateral custody, you know, specifically what I do, but however you do it, whether you want to do it with us and pay us, or you want to do it on your own, like if you do it, you will have the peace of mind and the foundation to stand on where you and your partner and your family as a unit can then say, okay, now let's go to the next step. Let's buy more Bitcoin, right? So ironically enough, you know, I, I talk to people all the time, uh, you know, that are intimidated of doing any self-custody, much less multi-sig, because they think their highest priority is stacking more. And while I understand that, the reality is that your number one goal should not be buying more Bitcoin, right? If you're listening to this conversation and uh, you've not taken self-custody, like before you buy another dollar of Bitcoin, you should be taking it to self-custody, right? That's your number one goal. That will help you have more peace of mind. It will help you make more sound decisions. Uh, it will, and, and ultimately, it helps you protect your Bitcoin, right? You know, if you're at 0.9 coins and you're trying to get to one coin, but then you lose your 0.9 coins because you lost it all in exchange and you were going to take self-custody once you got to one coin, it's like, I'm sorry, but now you're starting from scratch and it's going to be more difficult now the Bitcoin price is higher. So, um, so, so I guess my point here is that, you know, if people want multi-sig, if people want self-custody, if people want to do that, um, I, I highly recommend you do that. And if you're doing it to where there's no single point of failure, I think that's going to bring a huge peace of mind, um, especially as you're learning in these first few years of having self-custody on your own, right? Think of it like training wheels, perhaps, as we go forward, right? Your main goal right now is not, how do I borrow against my Bitcoin? It's not, how do I collect yield on my Bitcoin? It's not, how do I live off my Bitcoin? Your number one goal right now is, how do I get through the next five or 10 really volatile years and, and have a plan that if Bitcoin's price is volatile, I have a plan. If I get by bus, I have a plan. If my neighbor or whomever breaks in my house because they think I've got lots of Bitcoin just sitting around, it is are my coins protected, right? What about this? What about that? You know, think through these questions now because all those millionaires I talked about earlier and that everyone else is talking about in this call here, um, all those people are coming and they already are thinking about these questions with the rest of their money. And so when they transition to Bitcoin, they're already going to be thinking about this. So, you know, Bitcoiners really need to prepare about becoming high net worth people, right? If you've got $50,000 of Bitcoin, um, you know, that's going to look very different when we're talking about half a million or we're talking about $5 million of Bitcoin, right? Do you have your state plan in order? Do you have your taxes in order? Do you have your trust in order? Your retirement accounts, all these things. Um, and then, you know, UTXO management and all that other stuff that we're talking about too. All it's great, but that's just my encouragement for people that, you know, um, your number one goal should be taking that custody and, and radically enough for me in my personal experience, um, hand-holding people in that sense uh, in a multi-sig has been really useful for them and, um, you know, was counterintuitive to them. They thought they would have to do single-sig first, but having the stepping stone of multi-sig really helped them. So, Awesome. Thanks for that, Luke. Can I, can I, I ask I, Luke what kind of multi-sig solution they're using? Are you using you know, something that you guys rolled on your own or something like Nunchuck or... Yeah, sure. So, um, so if you're asking specifically about the Bitcoin Advisor, um, the Bitcoin Advisor is a service. So it's not a product. You know, we don't offer a product like Nunchuck or Unchained or those do. You know, we're we're specifically a service where we handhold people uh, through that process, right? So oftentimes we do recommend Nunchuck or or Unchained or Cost or you know, basically our, our clients can choose whichever software provider or key agent they want. You know, we make sure they pick the company they want, the jurisdiction they want, and that they understand all trade-offs, right? Because so often that's a problem is that they know what they want, but 
they haven't necessarily considered all the trade-offs and they need a helping hand on how to get there. And so that that's that's what we do. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Yeah. I think self-custody, <laughs> I always tell people, having a very clear and secure self-custody solution might be the only certainty in a in an increasingly uncertain uncertain world that you can actually have and i think it's good for your health because uncertainty can be very stressful it's good for your relationship because having a clear understanding of what happens to what happens to the wealth if something happens to you is good for you and your partner and your family and yeah i think um just like today, like when I first heard about Bitcoin, uh, paper wallets were a thing. We don't use paper wallets anymore. And I think a single SIG hot software wallet on a mobile device or an internet connected device today might be just as silly as a paper wallet today. And so we essentially, as technology improves, as awareness improves, as people actually start to appreciate the value of their sats, and as reality confirms that based on the exchange rate, uh, people end up sort of leapfrogging and not actually, we eliminate on the continuum of sovereignty, we start to eliminate uh, sort of stages that aren't as useful or aren't as appropriate anymore. And I think single SIG hot wallets, even if you're backing up your 12 words, are becoming more obsolete. Um, and especially as multi-SIG technology improves, uh, it, it nudges people closer to be able being able to go directly to multi-sig or even collaborative custody solutions. So I think it's it's definitely not as intimidating as it used to be. It's getting increasingly less intimidating. And the you know, our role as consultants might even just be to help people really understand the value of what they hold. I don't think people understand the value of digital scarcity yet. You know, like certainly the price of Bitcoin is not reflecting the true value of digital scarcity because people just don't understand it yet. And when people do, I think they inherently end up taking things a little bit more seriously, where even a million sats is actually worth a good amount of time and energy to make sure you have a self-custody solution in place so that three halvings from now, when a million sats is actually an incredible amount of wealth, it actually makes a lot of sense to put the energy now to give yourself peace of mind so you don't have to worry on the way to three halvings from now. Um, so yeah, it's um, the certainty and the peace of mind and the ease that comes from having a really clear, confident self-custody strategy that you control and that is going to be passed on if something happens to you. I think people underestimate how good that feels from a, a, just a peace of mind perspective and also um, just a health perspective of not having that stress. So Alexi. Yeah, thank you, Karibu. Uh, I just wanted to uh, second um, what you just um, wonderfully described about the peace of mind, uh, because it uh, completely uh, mirrors my own experience. I remember the moment where, at some point along my Bitcoin journey, where <clears throat> I had my system in place, and to me, I knew that I reached at that point the optimal sort of balance in terms of um, risks and convenience and, and, and whatnot. So the whole thing was just beautiful. And I was sleeping so good at night, knowing that whatever happens there in the world, uh, my uh, capital, my net worth is protected probably 
close to the most optimal way it can be. And uh, I also understood that it is really hard to convey this, this feeling to people who didn't do their homework yet. Um, because only after you travel the path, you can really feel uh, what it means to arrive at that point. So I think it's also, of course, our um, a, a, one of our prime objectives as Bitcoin consultants to guide people along the way and see what is the maybe the um, the, the best sort of uh, sequence for them so they can arrive at this at this very good place uh, as soon as possible without, of course, compromising on the learning experience. Yeah, well said. And I think part of sort of the value of a Bitcoin consultant is that when people are faced with an obstacle or a challenge that is uh, incredibly intimidating, it sometimes can be easy to freeze and be overwhelmed. And I think the role of a Bitcoin consultant can sometimes be you know, metaphorically as simple as walking up to that person saying, hey, I was there too. I was scared shitless when I got there too. Turns out all I had to do was go down this path and it's a pretty simple one. There's the first step. And I think that is actually part of what we can do to help facilitate the process of people navigating that sovereignty continuum is helping them take away their vision from this intimidating giant obstacle and helping them zoom back into the current present moment and actually just seeing the next step because that's a lot a lot more feasible and you know that that just highlights the role of helping facilitate clarity i think is a, a fundamental element of our role as a bitcoin consultant is just help people get clarity on the path and also the next step along the path um sydney oh shoot i actually had a question for luke but i noticed he just went to uh, i'll follow up in a few minutes no worries i think he's luke's still here if you have a question for him we're actually how about this next on the list i have what current what tools are we currently using like let's just share some some cheat codes about the hardware and software tools that we're liking right now uh and then we're going to go over to luke and he's going to dive a little bit deeper into you know, maybe a little bit of what he does at the Bitcoin advisor, although he shared it um, a bit so far. And then he also has some opportunities for people who want to work alongside him. So um, maybe just save that and then we'll come back to Luke, if that's OK, Sydney. Yeah, that sounds good to me. And you were actually next up. So the next sort of subtopic was what what tools are we currently using, uh, including both hardware and software? Um, and maybe sharing a bit about, you know, we can even name actual tools that we're liking right now, being mindful that we reserve the right to change our minds tomorrow as better tools come about. Um, but uh, Sydney, you had mentioned that you want to talk about tools, what's state of the art, what, what do you advise? And then uh, if anyone has anything to share, I'll share some of the um, sort of tools that I like and recommend. And we can all just kind of share some cheat codes of what we like right now. So go for it, Sydney. Cool, yeah. Um... Yeah, like I was kind of hinting at earlier, you know, I really think the key of how you think about all this is just where are the seeds and where are the vulnerabilities of where those seeds are. And, you know, at the moment, um, I'm starting to uh, think about and advise heavily towards, um, it, again, barring the fact that, of course, there's no one size fits all answer, is that um, stateless devices really seem to be um, really important, right? I mean, you know, if you have a treasure, 
Can you unpack stateless just for people listening that might not know? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so a stateless machine would be a, a device that um, when you turn off the device, the, the private keys and the seeds are no longer uh, remembered by the device. So a classic um, thing would be a seed signer. And so a seed signer is really just like a signing device. You would use the seed signer every time you turn it on and want to spend your Bitcoin, you would use the seed signer device to take a picture or, or let's say like input either the 24 word seed phrase or take a picture of let's say a seed QR code, which is a QR code that represents your 24 words that loads the key, the private key essentially onto the device, allows you to then use the device in an air gapped way following that to sign the transaction. And then when you turn off the seed signer or whatever else device, um, it forgets that seed. And the reason why it's so important is, you know, let's say you, um, you know, you have this just amazing setup where you have your seed on a piece of metal somewhere and it's super safe and be buried in the backyard. But then someone comes into your house and steals your treasure. They can take your treasure and they can basically go into the treasure and rip off the seed. And that becomes a major vulnerability. And so, um, a stateless device where of course where it's turned off and the seed is gone, then, you know, the only way you could ever get the seed is if you went into the backyard and, you know, used a metal detector or whatever and found that metal plate. And so, um, you know, nowadays I tend to find that, you know, and let, I would say there's only a couple caveats away from where I wouldn't advise a stateless, um, device would be either, you know, so for example, Jade is either a state uh, the, the the jade by blockstream it's either stateless or has a state but if it has a state i've also heard i plan on looking into this more that um, not on top of a pin that you have to use to get into the device you also have to uh, scan a qr code on the blockstream website which then allows for sort of like a added protection that even if someone were able to take you know your jade from your home and try to open it up they couldn't do it without interacting in that way and so you know, in the future, there might be ways at which um, device manufacturers find a way of protecting the seed that's on the device, um, making it, you know, impossible for, let's say, a, a thief or even maybe a government agency to take your device and rip the seed off the device. Um, but at the moment, I still think it's a little safer to have a stateless device. I would say the only other caveat is if someone simply wanted to have a, like a passphrase on top of their seed, then it's not that important that this device is stateless because of course, um, you know, uh, the devices never remember the passphrases. And so as long as you can only, as long as when you turn off the device, not all the information is available that would allow someone to take it when they take your device, uh, then you're pretty good. But at the same time, um, you know, I, th I don't, I, I don't see this conversation happening very much. And I definitely think stateless devices um, are state of the art, which also means that, seed QRs are becoming more and more important than simply writing down your 24 words, right? Because what a hassle it is to type in 24 words every single time you want to use your device. And so um, something I also use is a seed hammer, which is a machine that will um, print. It's like a CNC machine, essentially, that prints the QR code onto um, your device. And I think um, machines like that, I mean, of course, you could hammer it yourself, but that's sort of a tedious thing. And so I, I think at this moment, which of course I'm sure it will change in a few years, this is what I think is pretty state of the art. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I think terminology, I've started to really like highlight the importance of clear terminology 
with clients. So one of the biggest distinctions came from a post that NVK made semi recently, although it's been an ongoing conversation is this differentiation between a Bitcoin client and a Bitcoin signing device. And I've found it to be pretty intuitive when I describe it to people, it's not like too out there. If someone's really paying attention and, you know, is able to ask good questions, which kind of confirms they're listening. Um, I make sure that they understand, you know, a client is software that is used to create uh, and verify transactions. So the client is software connected to the internet. It's used to create and verify transactions. A signing device, which is often described as a hardware wallet, but I actually think signing device is more appropriate, is an air-gapped Bitcoin computer, uh, an ABC, which is just a fancy way of saying it's an offline hardware device that stores and manages private keys. So you create a transaction with a client and then you can sign the transaction with a signing device. And my perspective is that the cyber attack vector is actually way more significant than the physical attack vector. I'm not negating that the physical attack vector is a thing. I'm just saying for most people, based on the lack of understanding, myself included initially, of the dangers of having keys touch the internet and the idea that there's going to be pieces of software designed specifically to scrub the internet of seed words and seed phrases anytime they see it. So I think to me, offline signing devices are the default uh, when it comes to working with clients. And I think that when they're set up properly, they can eliminate a huge attack surface in the cyber domain. Um, and my favorite uh, clients that I'm recommending right now are Blockstream Green uh, because it's free open source software. It has a mobile and desktop interface, and it's also just very intuitive. I also like Sparrow on laptops as a multi-sig coordinator. So those are my two kind of clients that I like to recommend. In terms of signing devices, I think the Jade is awesome. It integrates really well with Blockstream Green. Uh, it's also free and open source. Uh, if you wanna go a level higher than that, more intense, you can actually do a DIY Jade. So buy generic hardware and then boot up the free open source Blockstream Green or, or the Jade software from Blockstream uh, or a Seed Signer. I think Seed Signer is a really cool um, you know, cyberpunk project that is accessible for people, even with low tech understanding who have a high motivation to learn. Um, steel seed backups are obviously great to have in terms of creating redundancy and also durability for seeds, because if you have a fire, your, uh, your signing device will melt. And if you have a paper backup, uh, it might also be gone. And then with businesses, uh, who want to do collaborative custody, I really like nunchuck. I think, you know, they have desktop and mobile. It's fairly intuitive. Um, we use Nunchuck for the Freedom Convoy. So I had like firsthand experience with some larger transactions and it worked super well. Um, so those are sort of the tools that I've been using and recommending and seem to get really good feedback on. Um, does anyone else have any input on hardware, software tools that they're currently using or recommending or any perspectives on, on any of that? Luke? Yeah, um, I think these are all great recommendations. Jade's great, Nunchuck's great. Yep, these are all all good inputs. Um, you know, again, coming from the multi-sig collaborative custody perspective, um, the, part of the beauty of multi-sig is that really, frankly, it's largely irrelevant um, which hardware device is used. Um, 
it, it does matter, yes, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter for the for the client's needs, right? Um, in fact, many of my clients still use Ledger, right? I mean, Ledger, I would never recommend for a single SIG, right? But that's part of the problem, you know, um, when with single SIG, you have the single point of failure, not just of self and immediate surroundings, but, you know, technically, theoretically, you know, device two, you know, I mean, Ledger obviously being the probably best example of that. Um, but the beauty of multi-sig is that when you have multiple keys, um, you know, as long as they're different keys, ideally in different jurisdictions, different countries, different, um, you know, redundancy structures and different signing devices, um, then that really builds in a lot of that redundancy and protects against that, right? So, you know, a lot of our clients still use ledgers, a lot use code cards, treasures, jades, you know, basically anything you can think of. So, um, so anyway, just to add that too, you know, I, I 100% agree with the recommendations made um, before. And I think um, for those entering the multi-sig space, that's something to keep in mind too, that not always, but um, oftentimes if you're doing a multi-sig with, um, you know, collateral custody key agents, um, you really can bake in a lot of redundancy into the structure itself. So that even if you do have a critical failure of one of the signing devices that, that your coins are safe, right? So, um, but yeah, great suggestions. Yeah, I think another role that the consultant can serve, I just kind of thought of this when you're talking about collaborative custody is the the um, coordination function. So you have software that does the coordination function for um, multi-sig or collaborative custody. But I also think there's oftentimes value in a human, a trusted human being the person who can contact multiple parties to essentially uh, schedule and coordinate a signing ceremony is, is how I word it. Um, where you might have a, for example, small company has a board of directors, uh, five, five members on the board. And you've, and I've done this in the past where we've essentially created a multi-sig where there's five key holders and three of the directors have to sign a transaction in order for it to be broadcast from the company treasury. And so the role of a consultant in that case is actually to reach out to the directors basically let them know, you know, coordinate a date and time where everyone comes onto, uh, you know, it's often a digital Zoom meeting and to help everyone be able to actually coordinate their signatures to broadcast the transaction. So I think, yes, there is software that does the coordination function, but I actually think the human element is really important because if any single one of the directors has an issue with their, for example, nunchuck software, it really helps and it really gives a lot of, I think, confidence to businesses to have a trusted human uh, available to help individuals uh, who are having issues or having friction with technology, because let's just admit it, not everyone is super tech literate or cares to be, um, but also just to oversee signing ceremonies where you actually just have to get people together and make sure they're all, you know, sometimes like gathering cats uh, or whatever that saying is. Um, but I think there's actually a service there where a consultant can be paid to take up the role of being the human coordinator of uh, collaborative custody, multi-sig um, kind of quorums. Um, Sydney, let's go you and then coach. And then uh, we'll hand it over to Luke um, to just share a bit, share whatever you want. Uh, and also just about the opportunity that you wanted to put out there to the, the uh, Bitcoin Consultant Network community. So let's go Sydney. Thanks. Um... Yeah, Luke, I have a question for you, if you don't mind, um, not to put you too much on the spot, but I, sure. I kind of go back and forth on, you know, signal signature, multi-signature. I was kind of curious, 
you know, just thinking about trade-offs, would you be willing to like steel man multi-sig? I I'd love to hear your thoughts about what you think um, about that. Yeah, like the downsides, sure. Sure. Um, yeah, the the primary the the primary downside of multi-sig is cost as well as complexity. Um, to me, the value add of multi-sig in general is reducing single point of failure points to zero. Uh, there are always going to be risks. There are always going to be trade-offs. There are always going to be challenges. But to me, when I think about how I want to custody my sats personally, I, I just decided that I want a setup where I know that even if there's a failure, um, you know, it's not going to necessarily result in a catastrophic failure. Right. So when I looked at my single SIG, I was like, shoot, you know, my face and names out there, even if I was anonymous, you know, people are going to find me. Right. Um, you know, especially as Bitcoin goes up five, 10, 20, hundred X, you know, it, it, the, I often joke that the higher Bitcoin goes, you know, the, or, or that the trade-off to becoming rich is that you become a bigger target, right? Um, so so anyway, all I have to say is that the the main steel man against single SIG is that you have those single points of failure, right? The number one is the individual. What happens if they lose their seed phrase? Uh, what happens if they forget where, you know, where their seed phrase is? What happens if they pass on? Uh, you know, what happens? Unfortunately, there are lots of stories of people, you know, having their seed phrase compromised, right? You know, family member takes a picture of it or it gets lost or it gets in the wrong place or the wrong box and that box gets thrown away or, or whatever. Um, you know, it, lots of different ways it could happen. And unfortunately, it takes a singular point for it to be gone, right? Um, and so multi-sig, that's the main benefit is that you don't have a singular point that is inherently going to result in lost funds. Um, but yeah, the, the negative of that is that yeah, it, it can be a little more intimidating for people. Um, and, you know, you have to make sure you're doing the right setup, right? The the big question is, how do you make sure that the key agents um, are not going to collaborate, right? And so, you know, many setups uh, do have that as a huge risk, right? People oftentimes put their multi-sig keys in like bank security deposit boxes or bury them or, you know, give them to family and friends that, you know, may not fully understand uh, the significance of holding those keys or may not have the right protections, right? So so there are definitely lots of trade-offs uh, to multi-sig, but I think if multi-sig is done properly, um, then there genuinely can be zero single points of failure. So then at that point, there are still risks, but then at that point, the only risks are tail risks of multiple failure points happening simultaneously. Um, so that, that'd be my perspective there. Cool, I appreciate that. Coach? Yes, thank you. Uh, I A couple of things. First, regarding what you said about being the coordinator of a signing ceremony, I think that's a, that's a really important point. Um, like having checklists, you know, do all participants have, you know, a backup of their seats and having everybody confirm, you know, is there a passphrase and is it written down? Just making sure you tick all the boxes. Do we have all the public keys? Do we have the wallet descriptors? Um, one of my clients had a bit of a scare where his, um, his nunchuck app wasn't working. And it turns out in nunchuck, if you didn't write down the seed words the first time, you can't access them again, right? So, um, you know, he did have them written down. It was no big deal. But, you know, there was five uncomfortable minutes of him 
you know, trying to remember if he had written them down or not. So just all these different, you know, trying to anticipate things that might happen and and making sure that you facilitate the process to be as smooth and as safe as possible, I think is a good, uh, is, a, is a big deal. And, you know, my experience with like tools that I like and use, like, for example, I love Sparrow, but I find that a lot of newcomer clients find it a bit intimidating. Um, and I've had some challenges with with Jade. Like I, I Jade is one of those wallets I, I want to love, uh, but in trying to use it for whatever reason, I've I've had like with a multi sig it, it worked sometimes, but not others. Uh, so it's it's an interesting landscape of sort of ever. You know, there's always new tools coming out. I remember a couple of years back, I bought this wallet that um, looked very promising and then it was discontinued. And you're, you know, you're kind of stuck there with like, oh my God, so now now what do I do? So uh, I tend to stick to, uh, like for my clients, I typically recommend, I, I've never recommended Ledger, but I typically recommend uh, Trezor for beginners and Cold Card if they're ready to up their game. Um, but, but it's, you know, cold card for beginners, I think it's a bit much, you know, I love it, but I think it's, it's, um, a, a little too much for, for newcomers. Yeah. Again, I think the, the piece about expectations that I always make sure to cover is like, allows me to better match the tools to the people. Because the worst thing is recommending something way beyond someone's technical ability and them just getting frustrated and pissed and and just not happy. Um, and I also, it's funny because one of the businesses I work with also had a recent scare with Nunchuck. And I think just the the peace of mind, knowing that they had someone where like, you know, one of them messaged me in a panic and I was like, it's okay. We, exactly. we just have a process to follow. Things are not lost. Stay calm. Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you? And I think I agree, coach. I think checklists are actually, you know, there's a reason that pilots use checklists yep. because there's a lot at stake when you fly a plane. There's a lot of things to make sure you do right because any single thing not done right can have catastrophic consequences. And I think checklists are incredibly important. Like um, a company that I'm kind of working with right now to onboard their directors, one of the they're basically updating the shareholder agreement to say that all directors, if they want to become a director, there's an expectation that they have to read the prices tomorrow so that they actually understand like the reason Bitcoin exists and the problem it solves and the existential nature of essentially what I think is, you know, mandatory to switch your business over to the honest ledger if you don't want to be killed slowly by a thousand cuts. I'm clearly biased, but um, you know, this idea that if you're going to be a director, you are going to be a key holder of a treasury and you're going to be expected to actually invest time and energy into becoming literate and gaining a confident understanding of what it means to hold keys. Because, you know, it's a small business. They don't have a huge amount of sats right now, but those could be worth a lot one day. And the idea is to make sure that everyone who is actually stewarding a key, even if they're not a single point of failure, should have a deep understanding of, of the value of what they're stewarding. Um, so yeah, I agree that checklists are super underrated um, and very helpful, but also that the value that a consultant can offer a, a business uh, who is taking on the responsibility to custody, you know, their sats within their own 
governance structure um, can offer just huge peace of mind and can bring calmness to panic scenarios, which I've experienced several times. And it's, yeah. it's, it's really just about giving them closure that like everything is backed up in a redundant way so that there's no, it's very hard to have a catastrophic situation. I think that's the, that is like necessary for them to understand in order for them to feel comfortable with actually doing this. Cause otherwise they're like, well, why don't we just give it to a company to hold for us? And it's like, well, it kind of defeats the purpose. Um, that, that might be something, I'm sorry, uh, that no, we might good. in the network, we might sort of develop and sort of get feedback from each other, et cetera, uh, a series of checklists. Agreed. That would be a good thing to open source within the network. Um, uh, can, can I ask you something? You you mentioned Seed Signer, and uh, I haven't played with it mostly because my mindset is um, my clients, who are usually no commerce, are not going to buy a Raspberry Pi Zero and solder in. You know that da, 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 da. like that's not going to that's not my audience, I guess. Um, what are your thoughts? Is that is that changing? Is somebody going to offer like a pre made one? What, I'd love to hear your take. So actually, I didn't do any soldering. Um, I didn't go that hardcore. I basically bought a, a kit that I assembled, and it was really for the experience um, of it. There's still a trust element built in that I'm, you know, getting Bitcoin specific hardware. You know, the the security laws of JW Weatherman I really respect. Remove all malware. Always use open source software, free open source software, never buy Bitcoin specific devices. So I kind of broke one of the rules there. I did it for the experience because I just want, it was like a cool DIY. It was to improve my understanding of how the hell this thing works on the inside. Um, not because I necessarily <laughs> intend to recommend it to anyone, but because I wanted to experiment with different devices so that I understood the landscape. I think the Blockstream Jade um, is my gold standard recommendation. You know, yes, it's Bitcoin specific, but it is free and open source. Uh, I've tried to screw up using that thing in as many ways as possible so that I understand what to do if something does go wrong. I've also had issues with the Jade uh, doing a multi-sig setup in Sparrow, where sometimes it doesn't recognize it, which frustrates me and actually creates an obstacle to recommending it confidently to people. Um, so yeah, I think as a consultant, if you are making hardware recommendations, I think you just need to go real deep into messing around with a lot of hardware so that you have at least some understanding of, you know, what are the most intuitive, easy to use products that still respect, you know, some fundamental security guidelines. And then also do your best to mess it up in as, when, as many ways as possible so that when someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm having this issue, you're like, okay, it's okay. I've had that issue before. Send me these screenshots, do this. And I think that's that's a, a pretty important element of if you're going to recommend hardware, you better have some experience messing around with hardware so that you can answer from a place of understanding. Um, and even with that said, you know, if any 21, one of the specialists uh, we're basically looking for on the team is a hardware specialist, someone who just goes incredibly deep with hardware and can be the resource for all the other consultants and for all the clients who have, you know, hardware needs or questions about hardware that um, individuals who aren't deep specialists in hardware can't answer. So I think there's value in having a point person, whether there's someone in the Bitcoin consultant network, that's a really, that goes deep in hardware and has a deep understanding. That could be a nice resource for individual consultants um, to reach out to. And uh, yeah, we're on the lookout for a hardware specialist at uh, Fini21 eventually. Um, Luke, if you want to take 
15 minutes to just, I mean, you've already chatted a lot about what you do at the Bitcoin advisor. If there's anything that wasn't said, feel free to say it. And then I know that you have some upcoming opportunities uh, for consultants to work with you. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear about that uh, so that anyone in the Bitcoin consultant network can kind of reach out to you if it's something of interest. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to talk about that. Um, yeah, again, thanks for having me on. I'm happy to share. It's been a great conversation. It's important one. Um, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, self-custody is the real adoption curve. So, you know, really what we're doing here is super early, but I think it's going to, you know, take time. Um, you know, I think single SIG is a huge part of that. Um, I also think multi-SIG is a huge part of that. And I think over time, multi-SIG will just take a larger and larger share of, of that. So, um, yeah. So anyway, all that said, um, you know, the Bitcoin advisor, uh, Peter Delworth's company has been around eight years. Um, you know, in my view, he has, uh, one of the best visions of, uh, where multi-sig is going. Uh, there's a lot behind the scenes. Um, I, I can't say, but I can say that I'm extremely impressed and it's been a thrill since February to, um, have been working with him, uh, you know, talking about this, uh, doing this, helping clients. Um, it, it's pretty straightforward. Um, one of our largest um, client bases are people that are due uh, to self-custody. You know, like I described before, typically people with coins on exchanges that don't realize the risks or they are beginning to realize the risks and they want them out, but they know they don't trust themselves, right? They know that, hey, I have dementia and I don't want to lose my keys because I know I'm going to forget. Or, hey, I'm a single mom and I've got a couple kids and I want to know they're protected in case something happens to me. Or, hey, I'm a guy and my wife does not care about this at all and I need I, I need a helping hand so that, you know, if something happens to me, my wife and kids are going to be safe, right? Uh, oftentimes, these are people that were impacted by FTX or, or BlockFi or other, um, you know, things of that sort. Um, so, so oftentimes these are people with those kinds of needs that are like, Hey, I understand the importance of self-custody, but I'm terrified of, uh, self-custody. Um, a lot of times these are high net worth folks that are like, Hey, I've got, you know, X number of Bitcoin and I've got a single SIG and I've also got, you know, a familial multi-SIG or whatever, but I'm looking to diversify my custody solutions, right? So that way, Hey, I've got some single SIG, I've got some, this multi-SIG, but I've also got some collateral custody multi-SIG with these institutions, right? So, so whatever the need, whether they're high net worth, no low net worth, whatever, um, you know, when they join, the basic process is that we help them make the decision of, okay, who do you want your key agent to be? Um, you know, how do you want to uh, set up your software provider? You know, like what, what are, the things you're looking for, how do we get you there? Um, once the vault is set up, then we help them with estate planning and and uh, everything else from there that we act as a um, key agent as well. Um, so yes, it's simply put, it, it's really rewarding. You're basically just helping people um, that are already Bitcoiners and almost always Bitcoin only people um, understand um, you know, how to do self-custody. Um, you'll get a wide range um you know or at least i get a wide range um people ranging from you know super high net worth to you know just starting out uh from people that are super knowledgeable that know like almost everything there is to know about self-custody to people that um are having trouble to understanding what single sig versus multi-sig the difference is at all so um so wide variety and people types of people jobs um, backgrounds, visions for the future, and, and pain points. But ultimately, what they all have in common is that they're looking for 
a self-custody setup where there's no single point of failure so that if Luke Broyles turns out to be a scammer, then their Bitcoin is fine. Or if the Bitcoin advisor gets shut down by the government, then their Bitcoin is fine. Or if they lose their coins and their Bitcoin is fine or, you know, on and on and on, you know, that's the peace of mind. Really what we're selling is peace of mind, right? Helping people, um, you know, to be able to sleep at night, knowing that no matter what happens to me, you know, this intergenerational wealth I've worked so hard to save is going to actually make it to the future. So, um, yeah. So anyway, I don't think I answered your question, but that, that's that's pretty much what that looks like. It's all remote, of course, uh, which is just crazy to think about. You know, five years ago, it's like this would not have existed, but uh, but it's what we do and it's what it's going to be in the future. Um, so, yeah, I'm super optimistic um, on the company. I'm super optimistic on multisig as a whole, on collateral custody, multisig as a whole, familial, uh, you know, uh, multisig custody, you know, everything. Um yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, I, I really encourage people, if they've not taken self-custody, to take self-custody. If they're really intimidated by self-custody and they need a place to start, I'm happy to help them. Um, but I know probably more of the people listening to this have hopefully taken self-custody and are now you know, either consultants or looking to consult or whatever. So um, anyway, all that to say is that, you know, I mean, if you want to, you know, if, if this sounds like something that could be interesting or useful or applicable to you i mean you can reach out to me uh, my email is luke at the bitcoin advisor um that's advisor with an er um dot com so it's just luke at the bitcoin advisor dot com uh, you know feel free to email me and that goes for whether you're looking to become a consultant and help people um set up multi-sig vaults or if you're a person that's looking to set up a multi-sig vault right i mean again doesn't matter your net worth it doesn't matter if you're looking to allocate 100% of your Bitcoin to your vault. You know, if you're more like on that, you know, uh, newbie, just looking for that peace of mind kind of level. Or if you're, you know, looking for diversification, right? You know, maybe half and half or, you know, you pick the percentage you want. Um, but yeah, whatever the case, whoever you are, where you are, wherever you are, um, I think most Bitcoiners are eventually going to want a multi-sig vault. And so my emphasis for both the people looking to consult people on custody as well as people looking to custody um i really think it's important people learn about it because um you know behind the scenes things are really picking up and i think the companies are coming i think the churches are coming i think the uh, funds and you know i think the institutions are coming and they're going to realize our two options are the etf for fake bitcoin or a multi-sig for real bitcoin and i think these institutions are going to be willing to pay whatever cost it takes to acquire the Bitcoin, whatever cost it takes to send a transaction, and they're going to be willing to pay whatever it takes to talk to somebody to help them through, right? So, you know, especially if you're an individual, you know, I'd really encourage that if you want a multi-sig to do it before um, the ETF, if possible, because I think that my speculation is that um, demand's really going to pick up and it's probably going to continue to be extremely high till, you know, probably 2026 at least. So, um Anyway, that's my perspective. Again, if you want to email me, my email is Luke at the Bitcoin Advisor. You also could find me at the Bitcoin Advisor dot um, com. So there you go. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Luke. I guess two questions that just based on a question I got when I mentioned you were going to be on this call is what uh, commitment level in terms of amount of time per week Uh or, I mean, obviously that would probably be a dynamic, but is there something you're looking for uh, to start? And then also, uh, 
you know, there's not exactly a degree in Bitcoin advising. So right. what what elements do you look for in terms of competence or what selection criteria are you using so that people know, like, is this something I should inquire about or is this, you know, like if someone does want to yep. become an advisor, doesn't know what that actually means or what ability level they need. Is this yep. something where the Bitcoin advisor has protocols to onboard and educate or yeah, just some clarity on that? Yeah, I, I just say email me, um, you know, email Perfect. me. We'll set up a call. We'll talk about it. Um, we are very strict. Uh, well, I don't know if strict or Peter probably use a different word, but we're, we're pretty, um, we, we have high standards. We'll put it that way. Um, you know, obviously we, you know, the, the, the person has to be, um, competent. They have to be articulate. They have to be personable. You know, not only do they have to be technically knowledgeable, but they have to be able to relate to people. You know, again, you got to keep in mind a lot of the people reaching out to us, you know, you jump on that call with them. And you have no idea. You have no idea if they just lost a hundred grand in some, you know, penny stock or scheme. And you have no idea if they're on top of the world because they just had their first kid and now they're realizing they have to save for them. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of emotion um, in a lot of these calls, a lot of positive emotion, a lot of negative emotions. So, um, so anyway, they have to not only be technically knowledgeable, but they have to be fundamentally first and foremost, a people person um, and be able to genuinely help people out um you know and they have to have a line incentives and so um so anyway you know that's um that, that's 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 basically it and obviously they have to be you know competent like i said and understand the tech and be able to learn and adapt because there's going to be a lot of learning and adapting um but you know it, it's we're, we're pretty open different people's backgrounds you know they're all over the world so um as far as time commitment as well um you know there's some people like me they're doing like <laughs> you know, half a dozen to a dozen calls a day that are just crazy workaholics. Right. Um, <laughs> and then, and then there are others that, you know, have other projects going on or, or, you know, only have time for, you know, a couple calls a week or only, um, you know, whatever, you know, I mean, you know, if you want to start just to experiment and learn, I mean, that's great. You know, if you want to start and just go for it, that's great too. So, you know, it's really start where you want. It's up to you and, and you get to determine the pace. So, um, yeah. So anyway, it's, um, yeah, it's whatever you make of it. Right. So, you know, if you want to, um, give that a shot, um, either at the Bitcoin advisor as a company, or if I'm working on some other side projects too, that I'm definitely going to need help with. So if you want to either help me with those on the side and those are paid, um, or if you want to help me at Bitcoin advisor, you know, either of those just email me at that email address. I said, um, Luke at bitcoinadvisor.com and, yeah, uh, hopefully answers your question. Yeah, it does. Thank you. Great, great. Um, last thing to touch on, we don't have to deliberate for too long. You know, a two hour call is like the limit of my attention threshold. Um, it might be similar for others. So I just want to touch on the oath of honor. I want to make an effort to actually touch on this every call we do. It might not be like a long point of discussion, but I think it's important enough that we kind of nail it. And even just having the discussion, I think has value. Um, so the whole idea of, a, I'll just kind of like put a little nugget in here. I just wanted to give a perspective as it relates to the Hippocratic Oath, because this was kind of some of where it was a conversation I had with someone that kind of brought up this notion that it might be good to have some sort of oath that we can all aspire towards. So, you know, regardless on your perspective on medicine and, you know, the clear flaws that the past few years have maybe illustrated, uh, I just want to make a note that the Hippocratic Oath is kind of 
at its fundamental essence, I think was a good thing. Uh, so in the Hippocratic Oath, if you're not familiar with it, basically physicians pledge to uh, essentially prescribe only beneficial treatments according to their ability and judgment and to refrain from causing harm or hurt. Uh, and it also specifically mentions the aspiration to live an exemplary personal and professional life. And I think um, it really was just an oath of ethics, whereby physicians would sort of swear to uphold personal ethical standards. And they just sort of held sacred um, these, these principles within the physician community. And I think, you know, while it's imperfect and clearly isn't being adhered to, if you actually understand it, um, I think there's something there where we can create a similar oath, a similar virtuous aspiration that we can all kind of like fall back on to look at and be like, yes, though I align with those points, I want to hold myself to that standard. And I actually think an important part of that is being having clarity on what those are. Um, and, you know, maybe the only thing I'm certain that should be in that oath of honor is Bitcoin only. Um, this idea that if you are a part of the Bitcoin consultant network, you are not recommending shit coins. You are not recommending you are, you are to me, Bitcoin is a never ending education path. And I think it's really important. Um, it's the most important. And so being Bitcoin only might be the only point that I'm sure of in my own oath of honor. But if anyone has anything to say or share uh, about that, let's do it now. And then we can um, wrap up and yeah, Luke put his email and I'll uh, in the chat and I'll make sure to include that in the show notes as well. So student of Bitcoin. Go for it. Yeah, thanks, Caribou. Yeah, it's to reiterate what I had said in our previous call, uh, keeping it simple that we all strive to enable Bitcoin as a de facto standard to exchange value with one another, whether it's with ourselves, with the businesses that we work with, but just making sure that that is the de facto standard we all aim to move towards. Yeah, and that might be the most <laughs> concise crisp and clear way of doing it. Maybe that is the oath of honor. Um, but I, I just think, I think it'll probably take us a while to really nail something that we all align on and just bringing it up as just an opportunity for people to share whatever thoughts they're having, I think, uh, will be a good practice on these calls coach. Yeah. Just my experience with, uh, Bitcoin only this last cycle was, uh, at first, you know, my, my, my very first clients, I would just say Bitcoin only. And they were like, okay. And that was it. Right. Then as the, as the bull uh, run started to go and, and shitcoin started to pump, et cetera, I, I started getting more questions. Oh, wait, 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 why Bitcoin only? Did you see what blah, blah, blah did? Right. Uh, and so I started integrating more information, like specifically explaining why shitcoins were shitcoins, yada, yada. Yep. And, um, Today, my stance is, look, if, if you like betting on sports ball or horses or shit coins or whatever, you know, have fun, but just don't confuse one thing with the other, right? That's that's absolute speculation. Don't don't try to understand, oh, this new coin is going to try to, none of that's going to happen. Like, that's all absolute bullshit. If you're going to gamble, you know, have fun, but, you know, it, Bitcoin is about savings. Bitcoin is about real money. And just don't confuse one thing with the other. And, you know, I, I just try to, instead of 
forbidding the clients from looking at shit coins. What I do now is just saying, look, that's a completely separate thing. And that's, that's just gambling. And I don't, you know, that's not something I can advise you on. I, I'm not a gambling advisor. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, yeah, I think my, I've, I found myself getting real deep into just shit talking shit coins. And I, I sort of set an aspiration for myself to just say, I have no opinion on that instead of, cause what I realized was I, I think I heard a podcast podcast recently where someone in Argentina was using tether or some, or something that I didn't recognize the name of. And was basically saying like, this is a lifeline for me to get out of the Argentinian right. currency. So I, I've tried to basically just say, I don't have a, an opinion on that. And just maybe warn people that, you know, make sure you're looking into Bitcoin, whatever else you want to do on your own time is fine. I don't have an opinion on anything except for Bitcoin, but make sure you're looking into Bitcoin because and, it's the only provably scarce global money. Yeah, and when, I'll say one more thing. I was invited to give a talk uh, called Bitcoin Not Crypto, right? And I prepared some slides, which maybe I should, uh, if anyone's interested, maybe we could like have a call and discuss because I did, what I did find is it's a good idea to have some critique of at least like the bigger coins, right? Because you, hmm. uh, what about Ethereum? I'm like, well, you know, I don't like Ethereum and I'm not saying uh, I'm right, but I do have reasons, right? And here's why and pa 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 pa. So here's like seven reasons, very specific, why I don't like Ethereum, right? Uh, and, and so having some, I think having some points about why shit coins are shit coins it, it for me has been useful so it, it might be an interesting discussion you know for us to have on another call of how do we frame because i do think that the framing of everything else is shit coin don't even look at it like for for me you know that was useful until it wasn't so makes sense good input uh so unless anyone else has anything to say or add i'll give it Five seconds, see if anyone wants to say anything, and then if not, we'll wrap up. Beauty. Well, thank you everyone for being here, taking time out of your day, or if you're listening, thanks for thanks for your attention. We don't take it lightly. Hopefully this call gave you some value. Uh, this will be uploaded as a podcast, Bitcoin Store within 24 hours, if anyone wants to re-listen to it. And uh, yeah, wishing you all a great solstice, great rest of the month. Uh, January 21st, we'll be doing this again. And actually on January 3rd, uh, I'm going to be organizing an event for Finney 21 called the, to honor the Genesis block Genesis day. So not a hundred percent sure. I think it'll probably focus on nodes because I think that's kind of something that relates to the Genesis block being the first block in the blockchain that was created. So anyway, I'll post something about that in the, uh, telegram chat. But yeah, January 21, if you have any suggestions about topics for these or anything you want to cover, please just uh, either put it in the Telegram group or DM me. And other than that, much love to everyone and uh, I'll catch you next time.